You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. There is nothing wrong with your television set. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner minds on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy.
I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to hear from the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication, Marshall Rosenberg, talking about needs and empathy. This is the fifth part in an ongoing series from workshops that Marshall Rosenberg led back around the year 2000. Marshall Rosenberg passed away in 2015, but his work lives on and continues to inspire many people all over the world who wish to learn to foster peace and mutual understanding in circumstances of misunderstanding, conflict, and polarization. It seems that never before has there been such a profound need for this kind of work in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Marshall Rosenberg was a wonderful teacher of nonviolent communication, and we can continue to learn to create peace and to enrich life and make life wonderful for ourselves and each other, even after his death as he has left a wonderful legacy of teachings in the form of audio recordings, books, and people whose lives have been changed by his work. Today, Marshall Rosenberg will be helping people learn how to understand and work with other people's needs with empathy and in situations of tension and conflict. This is deep, profound, and very challenging work to put into practice in the heat of the moment. And it is some of the most beautiful and enriching work that we can do with each other and with ourselves. Marshall, are you right now interested in hearing my, what's a lie for me on this? Could I? I say uh, no, uh, we would be into my (laughs) session on rejection. You got that right. So, okay, I want to. So I will, uh, (laughs) I will be glad to hear you. I am seeing a differentiation between universal needs and personal needs. Universal needs are just that, and personal needs have a specificity to them. And that when we are offering empathy, if we make the switch between what would be a universal need versus a personal need, then to me there's a breach of empathy. For example, in this came uh, actually in a group that I was with Liz. Um, let's say, for example, that somebody says, um, I just wish my husband would get it. He just doesn't get it. So I would reflect, so you're feeling so frustrated because you really want him to understand, as opposed to because you're needing understanding globally. Because then the person would say, no, I don't need understanding. I mean, I get understanding from other people. I want him to get it. Yes, she's addicted to a request. She's getting her request mixed up with the need, which Mm -hmm. many people do. Right, but in empathy, in empathy, in my mind, unless I, I don't make the bridge until I'm in honesty. And in honesty, I could educate. But in empathy, I would just reflect what I'm hearing from her perspective. Because my fear is that there would be a bridge uh, of... In, uh, in empathy, you would connect with what her feelings and needs are. Mm-hmm. What you would say, you might want to say that. Mm-hmm. 
but it would be very important for you not in your thinking to join her in that. Not in my thinking, no. Not but in my in thinking. The empathy, in the empathy, you connect only with her feeling and need. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, we all know that paraphrasing, what you say out loud is not empathy. So then, if I wanted to actually capture her meaning more fully, would I say, you're really needing understanding, are you really, and you're wishing that he would, that he would provide it for you, or, or how would I capture more fully you're the really fact that... You're needing understanding and would like your husband to give it to you. I would separate the need from the preference. Mm. Because one of the worst things that people can do to themselves is mix up needs and preferences. That takes a world which is so abundant and beautiful and shrinks it immediately into a dependence on a specific person taking a specific action. You talk about miserable consequences. That almost guarantees the other person cannot enjoy giving. To have a person's need dependent on your availability. So that almost guarantees the other person's going to hear it as a demand. And even if they give you what you want, you're going to pay for it. The stronger the preference, the less likely you are to get it. Yeah. Unless you can keep the preference separate and not think of it as the need. To be clear, our needs can be satisfied in many different ways. And whenever we trick ourselves into thinking they can only be met by a specific person, we almost guarantee we won't get the need met. Now, Susan, could you repeat what you said earlier today about needs of... Uh, you said two kinds of needs, and uh, I want to, that'll help me get clear what right. I want to say. Um, About the domination structure. Yeah, right. So, so we come off a, a construct of the dominator system as one life alienating system, and the partnership or mutual respective needs system as a life giving system. And I've been working with a lot of interest in trying to differentiate needs which arise from the old dominator paradigm in which we're working off of hierarchical structures and basically our survival is related to getting approval, liking, uh, so that we get the rewards of that, that system. That's getting, it's, it's yeah, not, more than you it. want? More than I want. Okay. I got it now. Yeah. And the other what one being wanted, intrinsic. What I wanted you to change is not to say the needs that were taught by the domination system. I'd like you to call that misrecognition of needs. Okay. Because what the domination system teaches us is, is not certain needs, but it takes a natural energy, a life energy, that I don't know a quicker way of connecting to this divine life energy than this process that I refer to as needs. When we're in touch with that, fully in touch with that, we have, we imagine how to get these needs met, life-serving actions. See, all life-serving actions. So, when we're fully in touch with our needs, nature puts into our head images of how to meet the needs. But education in domination cultures blocks this natural process and turns our consciousness of the need into a misrecognition of a need. Is that a jackal, though? <laughs> or a giraffe? Or what is... Now, the one... <laughs> So now she cannot tell the difference. I see where I've confused you with this. So this is just what I meant to say, that the education from the domination structure 
plays heavily on needs and distorts them through the education into what Michael Lerner calls misrecognition. Misrecognition. I think this is a very important concept in his book, Spiritual Matters. Misrecognition. To really understand how the domination culture functions. So let's quickly define the differences between how I use the term needs, preferences, wishes, requests. I say preferences, wishes, requests, strategies are all this. Preferences, needs, strategies all refer to what actions do we take to serve life. Now, the basic difference that I present in every workshop is a quick handle on how to separate these things is a need contains no reference to a specific person taking a specific action. A need contains no reference to a specific person taking a specific action. Now, where this gets confusing is to see the difference between what I just said, a need contains no reference to a specific person taking a specific action. So when we say, uh, I have a need for you to understand me, that's not the action isn't too clear there, but it's still thinking that I need this specific person to do something. So it's not a need. It's got a need mixed up with a request. Yes, understanding is a need, a need for understanding. But we don't have a need for this person to do anything about it. So that's a mixture of the two. So if I'm empathizing with someone and I'm trying to do the distinction and they're really attached to, for instance, you know, the, my child is the one who's going to do this to make me happy. Instead of trying to educate them at a point, and that and now point, you're mixing I want something up empathy else. empathy with paraphrasing. Empathy, do not think what you say is empathy. As soon as you think what you say is empathy, we're off target. I'm not following you still. Empathy is where we connect our attention, our consciousness. It's not what we say out loud. So you're saying I don't have to say it out loud, but just that I keep my attention at it. I'm saying what I define empathy is our connection with what's alive in this person at this moment. So what is alive in the person when they're attached to the... The best I know how to describe what's alive in it? Well, what's alive in them is being misrecognized by the two things which get us into trouble. Our thinking, this teaches us a certain way of thinking. And the thinking which comes from this leads to self-defeating actions. So, the problem is actions, requests, strategies, distorted by our thinking. The thinking leads to misrecognition of the needs and to strategies that are self-defeating. I, I think I'm following that. What I'm asking for is in the moment when they are seemingly attached to a particular strategy, what can I do to keep... Don't go there. No, no, even in my, in my mind to you see hear, the light. You hear, you hear their present feelings and needs. And what is the need? You connect with that. I'm not. It, it might be a different need different times. I mean, it, pro it probably is. One thing I take from what you're saying, the more tightly they're attached to it, the more energy there is around that need, the more desperately they're wanting it. So it's more about the quality of the need than which need. 
some other need was coming into play. It's what I was thinking, and I wanted to identify that other need. But You go with whatever need you guess is there at the moment. Now, a need, as I define it, is universal. All needs are universal. Anyone in the world has the same needs. So you won't see anything strange, whether it's a man or a woman, regardless of religion, regardless of level of education. All human beings are created out of the same energy. They have the same needs. But the cultures that we are in either teaches us to think in need language and to stay conscious of what serves needs, or some cultures, we call domination cultures, teach us a way of thinking that serve the structure, not life. And perhaps the most significant one of these, which I'll be talking about largely tomorrow in my sessions, is, I guess all of you know by now, I consider the most important human need, the need to contribute to life, that's my language, the need to enrich life, contribute to life, make life wonderful for ourselves and others which Viktor Frankl calls man's search for meaning. This is probably the most important human need of all. And domination cultures, jackal cultures, really work on this and translate and transfer that very life-serving need into tricking people into misrecognizing this as a need for money, status, approval, so, our whole education is designed because that need, people cannot act as a slave when they're really in touch with this, you see. So, to make us slaves of culture, domination structures, we have been educated to get these other things as the good life. That takes a powerful education to make us so stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I'm still having <clears throat> a question about uh, what Jananthi was saying, and I was wondering if you could give us an example of how do you empathize with someone who is extremely attached to their preference of getting okay. that need met. So need, they're attached to what? I need, I need him to love me. Great. Okay, I hear you have a need for love that isn't getting met. No, but I really need him. I didn't say I, I said that him. out loud. I just hear your need for love isn't getting that. Uh -huh. Empathy is not what we say. Okay, so what might you say? Nothing. You would say, no you'd rather say nothing. <laughs> I might say nothing. At times I might say, so you think you need him to love you. You call it the thought. You think you need him to love you. Marshall. And I'd say, no, I don't think, I, I feel that. So you strongly want that. You strongly want him to act in a way that will meet your need for love. Or if the person is addicted to me saying the words, I'll say it. Because that has nothing to do with empathy. For example, I was working with some street gang members that had been arrested for violent behavior. And uh, they were a little skeptical. They were forced by the judge to spend time with me. <laughs> So they were underwhelmed at the, at the uh, prospect of uh, having to study with me. And so I said, I'm glad to have some time to share some communication skills. I got no further out of my mouth than communication skills. And one of them said, communication skills? So you're surrounded on a street corner. 
and you think, and you know, you got three members from another gang surrounding you, and one of them has got a gun, and you're going to communicate. So I said, are you feeling fearful of under those? I ain't afraid of anything, man. So you want me to know life can be dangerous in your community. You got that right, man. So I'll use whatever words, but I was still hearing that he was feeling strong feelings and, and, and had a need for some understanding of, of what could happen in his community. So I, whatever words I use is not as important as where am I connected. The words are not empathy. The connection is the empathy. When this person feels that I'm connected at this level, that's empathy. Not when I think I'm giving them empathy. When this person feels the connection at this level, whatever words get me there, I'll use. But where I put my attention is just there. The words I use may be another thing. So in an empathic response, not just the empathy, assuming that you're already in empathic connection, but that you want to provide an empathic response, you may use the words that the person is expressing, even if the, your consciousness is clear about the difference. Is that, am I hearing this correctly, Marshall, or not? R roughly, roughly, but there's some things that I try never to reflect because I think it just hurts the other person to hear any verbal reflection. For example, any connection of forces outside of themselves to their feelings. So, you know, my husband really hurt me when he left me. So I won't say, so you're feeling hurt because your husband left you. You see. So I don't want to reflect back any language or, you know, these damn elections are the most farcical thing I've ever seen. So you're annoyed by the elections. No, no, I don't. I try never to connect, even verbally a person's pain to forces outside themselves. If I'm going to connect with the pain immediately to a need. How often do you connect the pain to people's thinking? How can you say it that way versus just going straight to the need? I'm not sure what you mean, John. When would I ever go to their thinking? Um. I really try never to hear what another person thinks. I just do not want to live in a world of thought. So I try never to hear what a person thinks. In life, generally, I try and never hear what a person thinks. I, I enjoy life much more when I never hear what a person thinks. So, so not that the, that the thinking might be causing the suffering. You, you wouldn't go there. That the, the, thinking, the thinking would be creating the suffering. You don't reflect that very no, I often. I hear the need behind the Just thinking. go for the need. That thinking has gotten enough airspace in the last 5,000 years. <laughs> now, I do think Marshall. that some thoughts I listen to when they follow my needs, when I've expressed the need and my need, let me change my statement to only express thoughts when you're sure you have first made clear to the other person what need of yours is being met by your thought. Example? Um, if I said to you, I really think the media in the United States is one of the most dangerous phenomena I've seen in all of my studies of history. Now, that would be my thought, you see. The need. 
I'm really in pain about the media in the United States and need some empathy. I really think that it is the most dangerous phenomenon in the United States, in, in history. So there, I need empathy. That's really where I'm coming from. So then my thoughts come alive. You see that the thoughts are in the service of needs. But the thoughts that I'm telling you that I try never to go to are those disconnected from needs. I try to go to the needs. What needs are these thoughts serving? The thoughts cut off from the needs are dead. I'm hearing you translate. I guess, I guess what the need is behind the thoughts, yes. I'm really concerned about the media because I'm afraid that it's doing blah, blah, blah. Would it be the because? Because I'm afraid that, no, that starts getting into a thought. Because so. I have a need. The more I can express the thought as a need, the more connected to life I am, the more likely I am to get the need met. So would you retranslate what I said? Say it again and I'll translate it. I'm really upset about the media in this country because I'm afraid it's corrupting blah blah blah. Because you really have a need for clarity and a need for integrity in what you, you hear. Okay, then what if I say, because I have a need for integrity and clarity? Yes, that's, that's coming from your need. Uh. Not making an analysis of the media. Could you give us some examples of translating preferences or strategies into needs? We don't want to translate strategies into needs. Well, if, some, if someone's presenting really a strategy as if it's a need, how would you translate that? Are you making... Yes, I have a, a need. Well, here's, here's a pure confusion of strategy and preference. Not mixing them together, but just... I have a need for you to spend time with me. Now, I want to find the need out behind that. Does this person have a need for affection and closeness or a misrecognition of a need to punish. I want to know, uh, <laughs> I want to know what is the need uh, behind that before I agree to spend any time with this rascal. Okay, so that's a pure confusion of need and request. But then there's the more dangerous thing. I have a need for closeness with you. Now we've mixed up the need and the preference. It's a confusion of the, the, the preference and the need are mixed together. So I would like to try in, in voicing needs to not have an object after a need. Try not to do that. So there would be no you, he, her. Except in the sense, uh, I have a need for your well-being. Okay. Because see, if we really have an abstract consciousness uh, of what the interdependence, any need that we have for ourselves, we really have for everybody in the world, if we're really conscious. So it's not just that I have a need for food and, and nurturance. I have a need for your food and nurture, for you to have nurturance. And it's all one, really. We're all one. Our well-being is one. But in the language, it's pretty abstract. So I would say I have a need at this moment for your well-being. It's really my well-being. You can't separate it. So if I were going to translate your confusion of uh, preference and need in the statement of I need to connect with you it would be I really having a strong need for connection and I would enjoy doing that with you and what you want what's your request uh, would you meet me for coffee at yes now I'd like to say one other thing about needs and that is I talked to one group already that I spent some time with on this but 
What makes very difficult, even when we are clear about these differences, to put words to needs is really impossible. Is that clear? <laughs> needs, needs are ascriptive, not descriptive. Needs are ascriptive, not descriptive. What does ascriptive mean? Okay, I'll try to make it clear for you. We have defined pretty well as a culture, I think, so we can get just about 100% reliability on whether the color you're wearing is red or black. It's, it's, there's still some, in some areas, some vagueness, but for the most part, where we have pretty clear, agreed upon, mutual ways of defining certain things that we observe. But even here, it's pretty vague, but sometimes is this person running or loping, you see? <laughs> but for the most part, we call these descriptions, observations, you see. You have pretty good reliability between people on what the color is. Was she wearing blue jeans or a skirt? That's descriptive language. But was that outfit she was wearing attractive or not? That's ascriptive, subjective. Now, let me confuse you just a little bit further for a moment, and then I hope I can bring it together. So, ascriptive, the semanticists warn us about words. Be conscious that the map is never the territory. Be clear that when you make an ascription, you use words, that that is not the territory. The map is never the territory. So that's why it's so important to separate observation and evaluation. You don't say, that is attractive. No, no, uh, the, I have words called attractive I would put to this. This is my ascription of meaning to this. This is my analysis, my interpretation. That needs are not descriptive. It's like a painting. This is so beautiful. This is similar to why the, the Jews do not like to use the word G-O-D, they don't like to pronounce it or print it. You don't want to cheapen it by something that you think you can put a word on. Do not mistake the map for the territory. It's, it's horrible to take something so beautiful and put an ugly word on it. So that, how do you communicate, you see? So you, you have a reverence for this. And the Jews show the reverence by not liking to print it, even. You, do, you say G-D or something, but to make reference. But you want to be sure that you don't cheapen the beauty of it with the word. I think the word is that. So all we can do with needs, it's, they're too beautiful. They're, they're, they're part of this divine energy of the universe. They're too beautiful to put words on. So we just have to accept the limitations of language, that we're never going to really describe the beauty of what's alive in us. But we do the best we can with the words. That's ascriptive, you see. So that's why we can all have different ways of different words to put on it. So the words I use for myself to describe my needs are usually not very likely to be what I use with other people. It's like when I speak English in Europe and in Africa and other places, I speak translator English. It's not the language that I am using usually.
how you translate how, how you translate differently for yourself than for someone else. Okay, for myself, I can use the word very often. Uh, like I was trying to figure out why in some of the remembering experiences, uh, I have a part of me, a need that gets tangled, like with everybody having to do the same exercise at the same time. I have a kind of something goes on in me, and for myself, it, it touches to say my need for autonomy. But if I'm talking to a five-year-old, I don't say, is your need for autonomy being threatened? I might say, so you have a need to choose for yourself when you do something. Okay? It's playing with a language that will connect us at this beautiful level as best I can. I just accept the very limitations of language. So when we're, in quotes, correcting people in workshops, it's mainly to not get this mixed up with this and not get these things mixed up with this but the actual words to put on there you have to experiment until you find words that work for you when you're speaking with yourself and connect you at this level with other people but that in case you're wondering we're listening to marshall rosenberg the founder of nonviolent communication and this is the magical mystery tour i just accept the very limitations of language so when we're, in quotes, correcting people in workshops, it's mainly to not get this mixed up with this and not get these things mixed up with this. But the actual words to put on there, you have to experiment until you find words that work for you when you're speaking with yourself and connect you at this level with other people. But that's an art. We have to keep working at it. It's not like we can give a list of words that we can now say, okay, that's the word for I just got a really important insight, which is that um, part of, I think, my problem with doing self-empathy has to do with struggling with the words. And it may be really more helpful for me to just be able to be with the feeling and not have to distract myself with the wording. That if I can use the well, wording to, to just clarify... to go with the feeling and the needs without worrying about the words. Time yes, that's both. what I'm saying, okay. and that, it, that I could use words or language um, only as a way to get me closer to a feeling, but as now long as it starts detracting from that process, I can throw it out the window, and now that's really very, very helpful for me to get that insight because now I'm you got stumped. It. Now you got it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that when I'm doing self-empathy, I've noticed that when we were doing this, even when you were giving me self-empathy, I was struggling with trying to make sense of the words that were coming at me or with my own words, uh, struggling with that effort to describe the feeling. And that that was actually detracting from my ability to just be with the feeling and not have to be with the richness of the feeling. I mean, because words in, in some way for me do detract from, they in some way diminish the, uh, the richness of a feeling. They rarely actually describe it fully. And so that process I notice in trying to to find the perfect description was actually detracting from my ability to give myself empathy. And that I would like to, let me just finish this, Jorge, for one second. I would like to be able to use words in a way that help 
me clarify a feeling when necessary, but also to, to throw them out the window when I realize they're detracting from my ability to be with my feeling. Now the other aspect of that is that you might be telling yourself that you have to do something right. And that's why interpret was really present at that moment too. So we end up being present with something else, which is a self-jackaling about not getting it and not doing it right. So I see two things there and just wanted to Well, that's, that's part that. of it is, is, you know, feeling like somehow focusing on the, the model, the NVC model and missing the whole beauty of the the underlying process. It's just crazy. But I used to I'm try to make this clear insight. to people by this. And it worked for about 80%, but for 20% it confused them more. So if you're the 20%, don't listen. But I said it this way. You'll find out when you're confused. But I said that there's really only been two people in history that have mastered the process that I refer to as giraffe or nonviolent communication. And neither of them said a word from birth till death. Can you say that again? <laughs> I said there's only been two people in history that have ever really mastered this process. And neither of them said a word from birth until death. And then the 20% said, who are they? And get stuck on that. And what I'm trying to say is don't mistake the process that I'm interested in with words. <laughs> I'm not one of them. I'm becoming more and more one of them as I use fewer and fewer words. This feels like a moment that I could bring up something that I think Jorge and I had been working on. And um, as much as I can recall, we were talking about a strategy of uh, um, I, I, I need nurturing, I think I'll go get some chocolate. And um, what I wanted to check with you, Marshall, was I love wishes and wants and dreams leading up to the need. Sometimes I, my experience is that people um, don't come right to the need. And so I like to know if you would, um, if, if this would fall into what you would enjoy. Um, I wish I could have chocolate anytime I I wish I could just think of chocolate and have it appear. I have a need for nurturing. I think I'll go see if anybody has any. So that would be like the wish, the need, and the strategy. How does that, how do you relate to that? I'm confused. I don't, oh. I don't see what you're getting at. I'm trying to distinguish between a wish and a strategy. For me, they're the same. It's just a future imagination of what the strategy might be, what it might look like. So a wish would be a future imagination of what a strategy yes. might look like. And I would say when I see the person going out to the kitchen or going to get the food, I'd say before you get to that strategy, what's your need? Well, I have a need to, to eat something. Now that's a strategy. What's your need? Well, I don't know what I need, but, you know, just very often it makes me feel better to, to eat that. So very often people use strategies that have worked and reduced some anxiety or something, but they're not clear what the need is, but it does give them a little bit of release. So they end up with strategies that a little bit calm them down, feel better, but don't meet their basic need. So 
So I need food would only be one level of the need. It would just be... So I ask very, very often with people that I've been who tell me they're concerned about their weight, could you tell me what need of yours is being met by eating right now? Are you hungry? Not really. <laughs> so what, could you help me understand what the need is? Well, I thought if I ate something, I'd feel better. Well, that's, that's a strategy that might leave you feel better. What's the need? You're not at all connected to what the need is. So we end up with what strategies we recall from the past maybe left us with some pleasure. Try to apply them uh, and hope that they'll work without any consciousness of what the need is. So would reducing stress be a strategy as well? Reducing stress? Yeah, you said, well, when... Well, I think we have a need for calm and peace, and so to meet that need for calm and peace, we might do things to meet that need. The problem is we might get the need met by certain actions, but it doesn't meet other needs for our health, for example. So then we have to find strategies that meet all of our needs. Marshall, what about needs and values? Sometimes I find with people if I say something like, so it's really, really important to you really value this, it gets another kind of a flavor of something. I think as we move up the ladder of uh, needs from the, the more concrete physical needs to more abstract spiritual needs, at least in English, the word value seems to fit better for some people than the word needs, especially if they had a higher educational level. But basically, I think they're all values and needs I use interchangeably. But I wouldn't think of saying I have a value for food at the moment. I'd be more a need. But maybe a value for respect. But I think the need comes closer to it. Well, have we infused it more or clarified what you had in mind by this, this time? I'm actually very excited. I'm really wanting this great clarity, real coherence as to this aspect of the model. And I'm very, very excited with that, that precision. And I, I'm, John was about to say something, then I have something to say, but... I'm also feeling very excited because I'm getting this hit of... Uh, that we as human beings have been given this gift of something in here that among other things has allowed us to produce language to interact with one another and that when I heard you say about two people who never spoke a word from birth to death uh, I'm pretty sure my cat will fall in that category but he doesn't have this this gift and uh, I don't want to give up this gift to be in the process so my excitement is if a, a pretty amorphous, but a vision of some possibility of getting to a place of being in that process without losing this. Whether that means we use language or not, I don't care. Maybe, I don't know about that. Uh, whether many of the cultures around the world that still exist, that have a process language, uh, they don't confuse the word with the thing. They have a process language. Most of you, I guess, have heard me tell about my experience with the Orang Asli's, where my translator really told me before the session he was going to have a hell of a time translating if I used any use of the verb to be. Because he said, we don't have it in our language. And I just stood and thought for a few moments, what would life be like 
if I had never been taught the verb to be. If you want to get more clarity on that, read in the research E prime. E prime. See, there have been movement for about 50 years of people that have wanted to replace our language with an E prime language, a language in which there is no verb to be, a process language, you see. And I was just thinking when this person said that, of what would life be like? And then I said to him, but my God, how are you going to translate for me today if I want to insult people or call them names? I mean, how can I think of going through a day without insulting people? I said, for example, if I say, I want to say to somebody, you're selfish, how would you translate it today? Oh, he said, Marshall, that will be very hard. Let me think for a moment. You see, we just don't think that way, he said. We just don't think that way, what somebody is. So if you said you're selfish, I would say to the person, Marshall says that he sees you taking care of your needs, but not the needs of others. He would like you to take care of the needs of others as well as your own needs. Pure giraffe, you see. Pure giraffe. Then he looked at me, and I'll never forget the look on his face. He said, Marshall, why would you ever call a person a name? Well, I had to uh, educate this poor savage. Uh, he's a very primitive man. I know he's primitive. You know how I know he's primitive? Because the name of their tribe, Orang Asli, is the name given to them by the surrounding culture. And it means primitive people. So, see, they are primitive people. So I had to educate him. I said, well, you have to know what somebody is to know whether to punish them or reward them, you idiot. And uh, I left off the idiot, but, you know, I was kind. Uh, and then he looked, and, and this concept of punishment, you see, is one they don't have in their culture. And so he said, Marshall, if you have a plant that isn't growing as you would like, do you punish it? Pull it up and say, be gone. <laughs> but if you want it to live, do you punish it? Why, why, why do you people call Yeah, yeah. yeah. Call you. <laughs> why, why, would they, why would they ask a jackal-speaking uh, person like myself to teach them a natu their natural language? It's a sad, sad story. They were living quite happily for generations in the jungle, in trees, and logging interests were destroying their habitat. And their one senator for 60,000 people heard of my work in Malaysia and asked while I was there if I would teach them how to speak giraffe with jackal-speaking people. He said, we have other consultants offering us free services. They're willing to show us how to use guns to get our land back. You said that E prime? E prime is uh, this movement. E dash prime is uh, a language in which no verb to be. It's also the title of a book. It's a book about this title. It's a, yeah. Marsha, I'd like to hear um, some of your comments about what I'm going to say. I've been experimenting with switching the feeling and the need, and the need that I say when I'm self-empathizing, and seeing that it's actually a request. For instance, I'd say, well, maybe I have a need for sexual expression. And then I found out, no, I was using, when I really checked honestly with myself, that that was a strategy for connection. And another example is 
it's not so much that I wanted a particular thing, like that someone would be there to comfort me. I wanted to feel confident of that. And then I settled on and had the best feeling that confidence was my need. Just the need to feel confident that I could get this other need met. Not to actually have it, though. I'd like to hear your take on what I just said there. Well, in response to the first part about the need for sex, I think sex is somewhat like chocolate. It's a strategy. Endorphins by any means. Pardon? Endorphins by any means. Yes. You got it. So I think both sex and chocolate are, are strategies that can meet maybe several different needs. And so it would really be helpful to uh, get clear uh, which of the needs we're really talking about at that moment and not get it mixed up with that specific strategy. So if I'm hearing you clearly, most often in your experience, um, what I see written on our sheets, sexual expression, is truly a strategy. I think if we really work hard at getting a descriptive language, we'll, we'll come up with almost every word on that sheet for needs. We'll probably come up with much better words and maybe we'll see there's really two or three needs mixed in with the words on the sheet. That's a very primitive outline of needs. Um, and what came up for you when I said the first thing where I actually described the feeling, a feeling confident? Is that not feeling really a confident? Is that not a feeling? That's a feeling, a, need, a feeling of confidence, but you also used it as a need later on. You said I have, that's, that's said my I experience. have a need. And I think we could probably find better words for, for that than a, a need for confidence. Probably you could find better words for it, but don't mix it up with the feeling. If I'm hearing you correctly, explore further and see what's behind me wanting confidence. Yeah, I think, and the ultimate authority, I think, on whether we're really in touch with the need, our body will tell us. Our body will tell us when we really get closer to what the need is. It's my best authority on what, at the moment, are the best language I can use, my body tells me. I've noticed a, a, a great body shift or shift in my body when I've gone ahead and said that to myself. Then it's, but it's getting closer to it, and if it works for you, then you might just keep using that. But I'm willing to um, continue to explore naturally, but I just want your input on that. Thank you. Is one of the ways to get at or express needs? Uh, it's kind of an art form, so whichever words really resonate to life, get you most connected to the life alive in you. Yes. But, of course, the poetry that works for me it may not at all connect the other person with what's alive in me. So, how to use a language that connects us both ways. Okay, we've got about an hour to uh, 45 minutes to go to other sessions. I'll work on the rejection theme. And as, as half the group leaves, you'll work on rejection. <laughs> but my greatest exercise in the, this rejection was not as bad as in Malung, Sweden. When I was with 80 teachers in Malung, Sweden, and I said something, and all 80 of them got up and walked out. What did you say? I was standing there thinking, my God, I didn't think it was that controversial. And then the last man that was going out the door, he looked back and said, come on, it's a fire drill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
We've been listening to Marshall Rosenberg from a workshop on needs and empathy that he did back in the early 2000s. And here's Marshall Rosenberg demonstrating nonviolent communication. Well, I'm glad that you've all decided you'd like to work on learning some giraffe. There's nothing I like better than to share this process of giraffe or nonviolent communication or compassionate communication. These are all words that I use to describe the process, but whatever we call it, I'm always glad to help people practice integrating it into their lives. So I'm hoping you have some concrete situations I could show you how it works in or questions. So, anybody have any ideas as to how we can get started? Yes, like uh, I heard you say in your lecture, you have a difficult time, or the most difficult time with your family and your lover. And that's how I find my life also. It's somehow much easier to open my universal heart to people outside of me than it is to open my heart of hearts to my family. Well, I'm glad you want to work at that level, because I'm sure we can all get a better idea of how giraffe works in that. Let me be your lover, for example. And what kind of jackless thing might I say that makes you forget all about these good ideas of compassion? You're too sensitive. Ah, so I give you a diagnosis. Yes. You're too sensitive. Well, the very fact that you find that a difficult message tells me what ears you wear, you see. That tells me that you probably are wearing these jackal ears turned inward. Definitely. And if you do that, then you start to take it personally. You start to think there is such a thing as being too sensitive and that that's wrong to be that way. There's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And then you start to feel like P-P-P-P-P-T. Pretty poor protoplasm, poorly put together. <laughs> That's it. Yes, of course. Uh, it's very easy when confronted with a diagnosis yielding jackal to, with these ears to take this in and uh -huh. think that there's something wrong with us or to put these ears on facing out and diagnose the jackal for diagnosing you. So sure. that would work this way. You're too sensitive. Well, you're judgmental. Uh -huh. You see and, uh, or you can be earbidextrous. You can <laughs> hear, hear a little bit of both. You see, you can both take it personally mm -hmm. and you can judge at the same time. Mm -hmm. But, of course, we all know the pain that both of those leads to. Right. See, what I've learned, and the more I learn to practice putting on these ears, which I'll give you a chance to do now, is that when I have those ears on, I see that the messages that are the hardest for me to hear are the ones that the other person's in the most pain and the most need me to hear their pain mm -hmm. and not get caught up in the judgments. So now with those ears on, when the other person said, you're too sensitive, you will not hear anything being said about yourself. Mm -hmm. You will only hear that that person has some feelings and needs, and that says nothing about you. So let's try that out. I'm going to say the message as this other person, and now the first words out of your mouth are going to be, are you feeling? And you're going to try to connect with the feelings. And then you're going to say, because you are needing. And you're going to try to connect with the person's needs. And if you're not able to do that yet, because you're just learning how to use the ears, we'll have this trained giraffe coach you. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. You're too sensitive. 
Uh, how are you feeling? Oh, excuse oh, me. Excuse me. Asking a person how they're feeling often makes us look like a jackal. We look like we are a psychoanalytic jackal. Correct. Psychoanalyzing them, you see. No, we don't ask how a person feels with those ears on. We sense how they feel and check it out with them. Are you feeling? And guess what that person's feeling. Try that. You're too sensitive. Are you feeling sensitive? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and be... Let's see if we can get another word for what kind of sensitivity, like what kind of emotion might this person have? My lover usually hurt. Ah, so sense that. Say, are you feeling hurt? Are you feeling hurt? Now say because and hear why the person's feeling hurt. Are you feeling hurt because of what I said to you? Oh, hold on. Here's what you're doing right into the jackal's jaws. Because mm -hmm. see, what you said is, are you feeling hurt because of what I've said? Uh -huh. And as soon as you do that, you are taking responsibility for the jackal's feelings, which is not good for the jackal because when we feel responsible for the other person's feelings, we cannot respond from compassion. Then we feel guilty. We feel we've done something to hurt them. Mm -hmm. So no, it's not, are you feel hurt because of something I said? Are you feeling hurt because you would have liked different understanding than you received? Or are you feeling hurt because you would have liked to have heard what I said expressed differently? See, we wanna hear the feelings and the needs of the other person without hearing that we are the cause of that. Our behavior is never the cause of other people's feelings when we have a giraffe consciousness. It may be a stimulus, but never the cause. As long as we feel the cause of another person's pain, we can't really give them the empathy that they need to heal from the pain. So let's try it again with, are you feeling hurt because you would have liked or because you are needing? Let's put that focus. You're too sensitive. Are you feeling hurt? And are you feeling hurt because um, you are needy. I, I, yeah, because you are needy. What? <laughs> what is this poor jackal needing? And uh, what are you needing? And <laughs> I'll no, see here again, we don't ask how the person is feeling, nor do we ask what are you needing. We sense it and guess. Check it out. Watch the giraffe. Okay. Are you feeling hurt because you'd like to be understood without what you're saying being taken personally? Yes, you always take everything personally. Oh. I mean, I can't say a thing without you getting, you know, upset. And I'm sick of it. I mean, you're just oversensitive. <laughs> Deep breath, you see. Now, this giraffe is glad that it's practiced focusing because it's spent a lot of time learning how to get in touch with its feelings and needs. And it mm -hmm. can give itself some emergency first aid empathy right now <laughs> to, to deal with what's going on so it can then focus its attention on the other person again. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's enormously frustrating for you. You'd like to be able to say some things and just have them understood without then having to see me in pain because I was not able to hear it. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So how does this process feel to you when you think of putting the ears on like that? It feels much better than the jackal ears. <laughs> much better. <laughs> Part of what does go on is I'm 
a, a, I guess it's a jackal voice, uh, wonders if I'll be right. When you, when, when you when guess the other person's yes. feeling. I'm glad you're conscious of that because giraffes never try to be right or perfect. Giraffes only want to become progressively less stupid. <laughs> you see, if you want to be right, then we get so afraid that we're afraid to guess what the other person feels. And then we ask, how are you feeling? Because we don't want to be vulnerable and show what we're guessing. Uh -huh. But if your want is to become progressively less stupid, then if I haven't been right, being wrong gives me a chance to learn. Sure. You see. No, giraffes know that anything that's worth doing is worth doing poorly. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm glad that you were conscious that that made this hard for you to do because gi giraffe ears, you see, the technology doesn't mean we can always guess right what the other person is feeling and needing. All the giraffe ears do is focus our attention in that direction. Mm -hmm. And then we give it our most sensitive guess, intuitive guess, and check it out. Are you feeling hurt? No, I'm not feeling hurt, stupid. I'm scared. Oh, okay. So it's one nice thing about jackals. If we don't hear them accurately the first time, they'll keep repeating themselves until we do. Uh -huh. That's one of the two things I love about jackals. They always give you another chance. If you haven't heard them, they'll usually keep repeating themselves ad nauseum until you do hear them. The other thing I like about jackals that we just saw, they're very liberal and generous with their diagnoses. See, notice how this jackal diagnoses you. You're too sensitive. Now you know what's wrong with you. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You can sleep nights. And they don't even charge you for this diagnosis. It's wonderful. It's wonderful if you have those ears on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. And we're going to hear more from Marshall Rosenberg very shortly. This is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, the Magical Mystery Tour. And we'll be back with more Marshall Rosenberg after this. If you tune in, stream, or podcast WGDR, we are asking you to support our end-of-the-year campaign to keep WGDR on the air. As Vermonters have watched with dismay what's happening nationally, we've been investing time and energy in our community. GDR is stepping up to the plate, too. We need your help more than ever. When you make a donation today at WGDR.org, you help us to continue to bring you programs like Democracy Now!, Curse of the Golden Turnip, Wood Warblers Jazzgrass, Relocalizing Vermont, The Magical Mystery Tour, Lessons from a Radical Model, Acoustic Harmony, Geezer Rock, and many more forward-thinking public affairs and uniquely curated music shows. Go to WGDR.org and make your end of 2017 tax-deductible donation today. Everyone who donates $25 or more to our end-of-year campaign will receive a limited-edition WGDR mug featuring the work of local woodcut artist Mary Azarian. Go to WGDR.org and click Donate Today. And those mugs look great. And here's more for Marshall Rosenberg. I was reading a passage of a book by John Powell called The Secret of Staying in Love. In this passage in the book, John Powell was mourning deeply that he had not expressed a lot of gratitude that he felt toward his father. And he had never expressed this gratitude 
while the father was alive. And it was very sad for him to see just how much his life had been enriched by the father, and yet he hadn't expressed this gratitude. And he got in touch with what kept him from doing it. What kept him from expressing the gratitude is while the father was alive, he had so much anger toward the father that he didn't get in touch with the gratitude that he also felt. And this is so for most of us. When we're in a lot of pain and we don't know how to deal with the pain, we get stuck in the pain. And even though things are enriching our lives, it's hard for us to put our focus on that and to celebrate that and to express gratitude. So our ability to express gratitude well is highly correlated with how well we're able to express our pain and receive empathy for our pain and transform the pain. The better we're able to do that, the more access we will have to celebrating that in life which is enriching life. But if we are blocked in knowing how to express ourselves so that we can get empathic reception of what's bothering us, we get stuck and don't have the energy or the consciousness or both to really express sincere gratitude. Having read what John Paul wrote about his sadness at not having expressed this gratitude he felt toward his father, I wondered, oh my goodness, what gratitude might I have within me that I haven't expressed yet, that I would hate not to express? And so, immediately, about 12 things came to me. 12 things that other people had done in my life that had enriched my life very deeply. And I hadn't expressed the gratitude yet. I wanted to avoid the sadness that John Powell experienced when he realized that he hadn't expressed this gratitude to his father. I wanted to make sure that this gratitude that I was feeling but hadn't expressed, I would hate to think that the other person would die before they could really know how their actions had enriched my life. And I wanted to find out what kept me from doing it. So for each item of gratitude that I hadn't yet expressed, I ask myself the question, what kept me up until this point from expressing that? I then took steps to make sure that as soon as possible I would get to these people so I would have a chance to express the gratitude in person. One of the gratitudes that I realized I hadn't expressed yet, how it enriched my life to see my uncle come to my house each day and help my mother take care of my grandmother who was totally paralyzed. And how much that meant to me to see that there was this quality in human beings that they enjoyed contributing to one another's well-being. How much I needed to see that and experience that at a time in my life when there was so much violence going on around me. So I went to the uncle the next time I had an opportunity because I wanted him to know and it, I realized I had never told him what a profound effect that gratitude had had on my life. How I kept thinking about it over the years, how it was never far from me, how much it meant my need to remember that we human beings were meant to contribute to each other's well-being, not to get caught up in all the violence. 
And I expressed that to him, and I'm pleased that I made it pretty clear. I let him know that that smile had enriched my life in such a profound way. And I could see in his eyes that he received the gratitude. I could see how it was enriching him. And I also asked him, I said, Uncle, how did you learn to do that? How did you learn to stay compassionate? I understand that you had a rough upbringing, that you went through a lot of trauma in your life. How have you managed to stay compassionate so well? And he liked the question, and he thought for a while, and he said, Well, you know, I was very fortunate to have good teachers. I also happened to be around people who I saw enjoyed contributing to other people's well-being, and it was easy to learn from them. And I said, Could you give me an example of who one of these people were? Oh, he said, You know, the best teacher of all I had. It was your grandmother. Of course, when you lived with her, she was very ill. But when she wasn't ill, oh, how wonderful it was to be around her and to see how she contributed to people's well-being and how much joy she felt in that and how much people received from that and how much they enjoyed her presence. So I learned so much from her. And I said, could you... Give me an example, Uncle, of one of the things that she did that had great power for you in helping you remember the joy that we feel in contributing to people's well-being. He said, well, there's so many things she did, it's hard to pick one out. He said, well, has your mother told you about the time that she brought Taylor and his wife and two children into the house when they lost their house during the Depression and they stayed in the house for five years? I said, oh, yes, my mother told me that story, Uncle. And then he went on and told me two other examples of how my grandmother helped people in distress. I said, oh, yeah, my mother told me that. And he said, well, then certainly she must have told you about Jesus. I said, what? No, she didn't tell me about Jesus. So he went on to tell me this story about Jesus. One day a man showed up at my mother's back door. He had a wild beard. And around his neck he had a tree branch in the rough shape of a cross. And like many people did, knowing my grandmother's generosity, he said he was hungry and would appreciate some food. So she invited him into her kitchen. And while he was sitting there eating, she asked him his name. And he said, My name is Jesus. Now my grandmother then asked him, And uh, what is your last name? And he said, I am Jesus the Lord. When my uncle came in the room, my grandmother introduced him as Mr. The Lord. My grandmother's English wasn't too good. She then asked this man, where do you live? And he said, I don't have a house. And she said, where are you going to stay tonight? It's very cold outside. He said, I don't know. She said, would you like to stay here? He stayed seven years. After my uncle told me that story, I asked my mother that night, Mother, uh, how come you never told me the story about Jesus? Oh, she said, I thought I had. There was a story like that almost every day about your grandmother. I was very touched about this story of my uncle telling me how he had been enriched by my grandmother's generosity to people and how that strengthened him to enjoy being generous. And my grandmother was a very large woman, but she was a very skilled dancer. And she loved to dance. 
and she used to say often, never walk when you can dance. And again, that was Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Marshall Rosenberg passed away in 2015. But if you're interested in hearing more of his work, there's lots of great material freely available on YouTube. Can call 
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. <laughs>